Okay, it says it started. Okay. Ah. Uh, it's crossed sticks. The old Hebrew. Remarkably like a cross. Like a cross, oh. surprisingly. Okay, mark, sign, signal, monument. It's the cross in Revelation. <clears throat> May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word. All your commands are righteous. May, our, may your hands be ready to help me. I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord. The law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you. Your Lord sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten. I have not forgotten your commands. Okay. See, good stuff. It is. Um, I got a prayer here. I know I had more this week. Once again, I kind of let things slip. It's been just as usual, pretty busy. But Scott Voltz, uh, we prayed for him a while ago. He had COVID. Well, he's got nerve pain associated with it. And uh, it's kind of really debilitating him. So we want to add him into prayer. And then I want to tell you that if you are here next Thursday, either at the church or here for live stream, you're going to be all alone because we will not be here. Next week is Thanksgiving in the U.S. And so we will be at home eating ourselves silly. So uh, next Thursday, no Bible study. And uh, let's see here. Um, let me get this. Today is the 18th of November. I was just about to say October, so I'm glad you said that. 18th of November. Here we go. I, Benjamin, take thee, Annie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. In 1876, when Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, made this vow to his wife, Annie King, Kincaid, I guess, but it's spelled funny, he made it with all of his being. Warfield was born in 1851 near Lexington, Kentucky. His father was a farmer and a published expert on raising cattle. His mother was the daughter of Reverend Robert Jefferson Breckenridge, a theologian at the Presbyterian Cemetery in Danville, Kentucky. As a boy, Warfield made a public profession of his faith in the Lord Jesus and joined the Second Presbyterian Church of Lexington at the age of 16. His mother wanted him to be a minister, but while he was a student at Princeton University, his main academic interests were mathematics and science. He graduated with highest honors at the age of just 19 and went off to Europe for graduate study in science. To everyone's surprise and his mother's delight, he wrote home in 1872 to announce that he had decided to enter the ministry instead. He returned to the United States and entered Princeton Theological Seminary, graduating with the class of 1876. And that summer, he married Annie Kincaid, the daughter of a prominent Lexington attorney who had once represented Abraham Lincoln in a trial. For their honeymoon, the happy couple went to Europe, where Warfield was to study at the University of Leipzig. One day, while they were hiking in the Hartz Mountains of Germany, they were caught in a violent thunderstorm. Annie suffered a nervous breakdown from which she never recovered. She remained to some degree an invalid for the rest of her life. 
Back in America, Warfield served nine years as professor of New Testament at Western Theological Seminary in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. In 1887, he was called to Princeton Theological Seminary as a professor of theology. At Princeton, Warfield became his generation's leading exponent of Calvinistic theology in general and the authority of Scripture in particular. He was an outspoken critic of the liberal scholarship of his day and a prolific author. His collected works fill ten volumes. In the midst of all of his teaching and writing, Warfield was simultaneously caring for his beloved Annie. At first, she was able to go on walks through the town of Princeton with her husband. When this became too difficult for her, they would walk together back and forth across the porch in front of their home. Eventually, she became bedridden and was seen by few others than her husband. By his own choice, Warfield spent nearly all of his non-teaching hours at home. Even with a busy academic schedule, he, res he reserved time every day for reading to Annie. He was almost never away from his wife for more than two hours at a time. During the last ten years of Annie's life, the Warfields only left Princeton once to go on a vacation that he hoped would improve her health. In spite of the limitations placed on his life by her condition, no one ever heard one word of complaint from Warfield. In describing him, a friend once said he has had only two interests in his life, his work and Miss Warfield. When Annie Warfield died on November 18, 1915, her husband had lovingly cared for her for 39 years. Warfield himself died five years later. In spite of all of the hours spent as caregiver to his wife, no other theologian of his time is as widely read today or has had his books in print as long as those of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. God blessed his faithfulness to his marriage. Are there things in your life that have not turned out as you had hoped? Are you like Benjamin Warfield, to be faithful and content in whatever situation God places you? Or are you struggling? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. Philippians 4, I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything with the help of Christ who gives me the strength I need. Lord God, we lift up the uh, gentleman, Scott, that we mentioned a moment ago, and anybody else that is suffering with pains or trials or troubles or difficulties in their life. And uh, we certainly uh, pray that you would be with them through their afflictions and help them to be like Benjamin Warfield was. He endured all kinds of suffering and all kinds of difficulties taking care of his wife, and yet nobody ever heard him complain about it. May we also have the same attitude in our own lives. Help us to be responsible to those we love and to those that the Bible tells us to care for, and indeed for all of the people that uh, come into our lives that we are responsible to tell the gospel message to before it's too late and we miss our chance. Lord, help us to do these things that you'll be glorified. We certainly pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in the book of Ephesians. I think we're in chapter 6, which means we're in the last chapter of Ephesians, although I want to make sure that's correct. Yes, it looks like it is. And I think, if I remember from last week, we are in verse 10. And did I write that down? Yes, yep. I did. Ephesians 6, 10. Okay. You go wherever you want. Well, it's the beginning of a paragraph, and also the thought is now the armor of God. Oh, good. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Oh, that was quick. 
I didn't even have a chance to stop squinting my eyes. Okay, uh, Paul now comes to the closing thoughts of the epistle. This is evidenced by the word, finally, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He has presented an amazing display of the wonder of the work of Christ and how it pertains to his redeemed. But he wants them to not forget that there is still an ongoing battle which is being waged. Though the victory is assured and though the redeemed are already saved once and for all, I had somebody email me today and say that uh, you can't be saved if you still sin. He wants to know how to answer this person. And so I'll get him an answer probably tomorrow. But uh, yeah, to imagine that this is the theology of people like, you know, you can lose your salvation or you have to be sinless in order to be saved. And John says that he who sins is, uh, how does he say it? Uh, John in his uh, uh, first epistle, how does he say that, Burke? Uh, He who sins is not, uh, can we help you? It's good to have you here. I I didn't think that you'd be coming. Good to have you here. Ms. Garrett has showed up. Um, uh, what is the verse I'm thinking of, Burke? It says he... If we say we have... Oh, yes. We're deceiving ourselves. Well, not that one. no sin. Yeah. Deceiving ourselves. Well, that one, but there's another one. He who sins, uh, it's in the book of 1 John, and he talks about, um, he who sins... Anyway, um, uh, the obvious, obvious thing about this, before I even go on, it just came to mind, and I'd like to get it resolved, but you're right. He who says he has no sin... Uh, that is a true one. Nobody can claim that they're sinless. But there's one that sounds like if you sin, then you're not saved. And Burke will find it in a second. Anyway, um, uh, the answer to this is that we are in Christ. Every single one of us sins. The difference is that we are not being imputed sin. And therefore, we are, in essence, sinless. Everybody got the difference? I do wrong things all the time. Did you find it? Well, 10, verse 10. What does it say? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Okay. His word is not in us. Okay, that's not the one I'm looking for, though. Yeah, but that's a good verse if we say we haven't sinned. Uh, Let me go there really quickly, and you look, and I'll look, and we'll find it together. I know it's in the first epistle because it's uh, it's one of those uh, uh, things that... We'll just see if we can find this because I want to make a point. Here we are in Ephesians, and he's bringing this issue up. Um, if we say we have no new commandment, he was, uh, says he's in the light and hates his brother. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, I might not be able to find it, and I'm not going to spend all day looking for this, but um, it, uh, he's dealing with sin, and he is faithful if we sin uh, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we sin, yeah, 110, that's not the one I'm looking at, but um, uh he who has sin, sin, sin. He, whoever sins, here it is, uh, 3.6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Okay. How can that be? We all, does anybody here admit that they haven't sinned since they came to Christ? Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I would say that it's impossible. What? Yeah, since mom, mom said since, since she walked in the door, which wasn't that long ago. Okay, so um, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. What does that mean? It goes right to 2 Corinthians 5.19. I'll take you there, and then we'll go on with the point we're making. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then verse 19 says, um, that is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not 
imputing their trespasses to them. People that are in Christ can sin, but we are not being imputed sin. John says whoever commits sin is also commits lawlessness, and uh, lawlessness is sin, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. If we are in Christ, there is no sin. He goes on, whoever abides in him does not sin, because we're not being imputed sin. Does everybody see that? Now, that's the answer I'm going to give this guy when I answer his email. This guy says, well, you if you sin, then you can't be in Christ. And he's probably using that verse right there. He's not thinking through anything. And he's also trying to say that he's better than everybody else because he's not sinning, which is a lie. It's a complete lie. Which is a sin. Which is a sin, by the way. So there you go. Uh, but he is, if he's in Jesus, he's not being imputed that sin. So that'll take care of that right there. But we'll go back and read this again. He has presented an amazing display of the wonder of the work of Christ and how it pertains to his redeemed. But he wants them to not forget that there is still an ongoing battle which is being waged. Anybody that denies that, obviously, is way better than I am. Because I have an ongoing battle, not just from day to day, but from hour to hour and sometimes minute to minute. Okay? Though the victory is assured... And though the redeemed are already saved once and for all, give me a verse that confirms that, saved once and for all. Never to lose your salvation, impossible. Right at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, maybe the first chapter, probably the 13th verse, anybody? Okay, you got that there? I'm going to stop laughing. I will. Yeah, and you also were included in Christ when you, when you heard the truth, the word of truth of the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise, promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our Guarantee. inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Yes. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So anybody that can look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 and find anything other than eternal salvation is presupposed already to believe that you cannot be saved eternally. And they... In essence, we'll go through that really quickly because we're still in Ephesians. We might as well just go ahead and uh, let me turn there. Uh, we might as well go back and review because this is the last chapter and he's talking about how we have to conduct our lives. This is the, uh, you know, the implements of our battle. He's going to talk about that. Well, how do you know if you can lose your salvation? Okay, we'll go through that very quickly. In him, you also trusted. I trusted in Jesus. Okay, where is my faith? In Jesus. in Jesus. Where is my hope? It's in Jesus, right? If my hope is in Jesus, and Jesus has said, I have saved you, and he fails to save me, then what does that say about our Redeemer? He's a pretty poor Redeemer, right? Okay, so that's the first part. You, you're calling into question the efficacy of the work of Jesus if you say you can lose your salvation. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So I heard the gospel, I was saved. The gospel of your salvation. Okay, so if I am saved and I can lose it, then the gospel is an ineffective tool to keep me being saved. Everybody got that? So that's the second one. The efficacy of Christ is called into question. The gospel itself is valueless. Okay, in whom? Jesus. I inserted the word Jesus. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed. The seal is, uh, I can't remember the word right now, sphagizo, I think, in Greek. It's the seal. It's something that if you seal something, 
it testifies to the owner or the person that sealed it as his uh, his uh, guarantee, his authority over what is sealed. Okay, if a king seals something, that is the highest seal of the land. You're if you say this is no good, then you are calling into question the authority and promise of that king. Off comes your head. Okay, in this case, this is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God, who created all things, has sealed you and said that this is your seal. I am now giving you this seal as a promise. Okay, so now that's the third issue. You've called into uh, question the efficacy of the work of Christ. You've called into uh, question the gospel itself. And now you've called into question the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Is God sealing you worth its seal? Or is it not worth its seal? Okay. Who is the guarantee? It's the Holy Spirit of promise, but who is the guarantee? That's the fourth issue. If, in fact, you have been guaranteed with the seal through the gospel by the work of Christ, then you are now calling into question God's ability to keep his promise, his guarantee, his covenant. And that's why we have people that are called replacement theologians. They, and we'll talk about that in this coming sermon, next week's sermon, probably every sermon during the the blessings and the curses. If Israel can be no longer God's people, then God has failed Israel. Despite Israel being a bad bunch of people that didn't obey the Lord and have been exiled twice, that is irrelevant to God's part of the promise. Our unfaithfulness in no way negates God's faithfulness. So, he has given us a guarantee You have now called into question God's integrity by saying that you can lose your salvation, okay? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? An inheritance is something you do not work for. It is given to you. If you have to work for it, then it's not an inheritance. It's a wage and not a a gift. A a, a what? Celery. Celery? Oh, salary. I I thought she said celery. Are you hungry? Okay, um, which that's not a very tasty meal, by the way. Um, uh, Yes, or nourishing. Redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Is it about our deeds, our faithlessness or faithfulness, or is it about God's glory that said you have accepted the premise that I sent Christ into the world, that you accepted that gospel, that the Holy Spirit sealed you, and from there he gave you the promise. All tied up in there. Is God's glory worth that or not? So you have to decide that yourself. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, it calls all of those things into question. And it also says that God is incompetent. And the reason why is because God knows the end from the beginning. If he sealed you in the first place, then that means that he made a mistake. It means he made a mistake because if he knew the end and he knew that you could lose your salvation, he would not have put his authority, his honor, his integrity, and indeed his glory on the line to seal you in the first place. Okay? God is not incompetent. God is infinitely glorious. God is a keeper of his promises, even when we are not. Look at Israel. They are still a people in the world today. But this is why we have replacement theologians, is because they believe that God is not the integrity filled God that we accept in the Bible that has kept Israel because of his promises. That is what is in question, and I don't care if they say that's not true. It is true. If God can break his covenant with Israel, he can break it with you.
And so the whole thing that, and like I said, there are certainly replacement theologians that believe you can't lose your salvation, but now they have a conflict in their own theology because they say that Israel can be out, but I can't be. That's their problem, and I'm not even going to deal with that. Both of them are incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. Uh, yes? Second uh, Timothy. Second. Second Timothy one twelve. Okay. Oh yeah. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He's he's the keeper. That he is the keeper. That's exactly right. Two Timothy. 112. I was in 212, so it always helps to be in the right chapter. Yes, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he, good verse, he is able to keep it, keep what I have committed to him until that day. I committed to him my belief, the gospel of my salvation. He will keep it. It doesn't matter if we are good people or not after that. It does for other reasons, but not for the sake of salvation. So you just God is, go right over to Philippians there, 1 6. He's, he's able to keep it until that day. Absolutely. Be, again and again, everything, Paul never says anything even comes close to the thought of losing your salvation. No. Never. So people will take his verses and say they do, but they have taken them out of context. Yes, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Very good. Another good verse for that. So, Which, which 2 Timothy verse was that? 2 Timothy 1.12. 1, 1.12. Yes. Okay, so uh, Ephesians 1.13. Yes. over to John, he says, if we sin, you know, he says, if we sin. We have an advocate. We have an advocate, right. So that's calling into question the advocacy of the Lord as well as his efficacy. It's calling into question everything about the honor and the integrity of God. John's the writer, and he's associated himself with the, whoever he's writing to. Right. Know? So, if we sin. Absolutely. I, if we sin, we have an advocate. Yeah. An advocate is different than a mediator. A mediator is one that says, we have two parties that have a, a war between them. I'm going to come in, and we're going to mediate until there is a resolution to this conflict. Whatever type of, it can be monetary, it can be two countries, whatever. I am going to mediate. An advocate says, this person is in the wrong, and I am standing here to defend him. Or he may not be in the wrong, but he is the one that has been charged with an offense of some kind. I am going to defend him. I am going to be the advocate for him. They're close, but they're not the same thing. Mediator takes the thing between two parties. Christ takes his blood and carries it to the Father. I have proven this. So there is an advocacy in his mediatorial role. But an advocate is a little different than a mediator. Well, verse 9 is a little bit, it doesn't say advocate here. He says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. To forgive us. Absolutely. Every single thing in the Bible and nothing in the Bible will contradict it. Everything in the Bible is speaks of God's faithfulness, yes. his faithfulness, even in the presence of our unfaithfulness. Okay, so... Though the victory is assured, and though the redeemed are already saved once and for all, established beyond reasonable doubt in this class right now, we never have to debate that issue again Correct. until tomorrow, and though we are even now seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, which was Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse 4, I think, and then we're going to just go on. I said 2, 6, but I know it begins earlier than that. It's Oh yeah, we're going to start in 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, and that means every person on this planet, he loves them. God is love, but we have to 
do our part in order to receive that love. Okay? If we don't do our part, then we stay at enmity with God and he must judge us. But and that is except. Yes. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses, which means that God loves everybody. Every person on this planet is dead in their trespasses from the moment that they are conceived. Okay? Dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Meaning that we called on Christ, we believed the gospel, and it says, we did this with him. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is done. It is a done deal. When you believe, God raises you up positionally. That doesn't mean that we're sitting up in heaven right now, obviously. My underarms probably stink because I've been wearing this shirt all day while I've been out doing stuff. But uh, I am seated post... <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, well, I just came to I'm mind, okay? I'm sitting here sweating because I put on a long sleeve shirt, and even though it's 70 degrees in here, I'm hot, okay? So anyway... Um, uh, oh, somebody asked me about this. It says 10 laws, and uh, you know, no, I'm not taking us back to the Ten Commandments, but what I did, I don't know if you remember about, um, uh, what was it, about eight, eight or 10 years ago, they started saying, you can't have the Ten Commandments everywhere. They were taking them out of everywhere. It was just like they're doing with the Confederate statues last year. Everywhere in America, they were taking out the Ten Commandments, and I said, I'm not going to be bullied by people like this. And so I went and printed up, what, a hundred of these, and I gave them to all of my friends, all of my family, and I said, every time I walk into the U.S. Post Office, I will, oh yeah, on the back, it's got the Ten Commandments. That's why I did that, is I had them all printed off, and I took them to everybody I could think of, and I had more up until about a year ago when I gave the last couple away, but uh, that's why I did this. I was so fuming at the fact that they want to cancel our Christian faith and the basis of it, which is, you know, stems from the Old Testament law, and then Christ came and fulfilled the law. I said, I'm not going to take that. And so every time for it, for years, I would walk into the post office and I wore one of these shirts. Can we help you, ma'am? Oh, she's a little bit late. So a point of that is that um, you um, you had the shirt, and uh, oh God, I lost my train of thought when she walked in, but... Um, uh, you wore that also when you were doing the 50 states. Right? Oh, yes. I would wear this at times <clears throat> going around the states as well. I had a couple other shirts. I had one that had the 50 state challenge on it and all that. But yeah, I'd wear these. And, and uh, even now, if I know that I'm going to offend somebody with this, I will wear it. I, I will put it on if I know that I'm going to offend somebody. Um, I sent you this thing to judge over in Alabama. Uh, Roy Moore. Yeah. A, a big, long Yeah. Uh, that he wrote about this. Absolutely. Yeah. He's had enough, that guy. Yeah. He's a good job. Okay, so um, uh, we were talking about Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he says what everybody should get, but they don't. For grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, so you've got all that theology tied up in just a couple of verses. We are positionally sitting in the heavenly realms right now. If, in fact, you can lose your salvation, and remember, the term in Christ means that we are in Christ. Right. We are a part of what God is doing in Christ. That doesn't mean that we're in Jesus, the human. We are in Christ. Okay, he is the divine God. He is the connection between humanity and deity. 
Christ. He is what God is doing in the world. If we are in Christ and we can lose our salvation, that means that we, that Christ is completely ineffective. That's what that means, okay? And it says in 1 Timothy, uh, let me read you, we're talking about 1 Timothy um, 2, I think, or 2 Timothy, whatever you were talking about, but the other one is, here it is. This is a faithful saying. This is 2 Timothy 2, 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Guess what? That does not mean that if we are saved and we deny him, he will deny us. That means that if we never accept him, we have denied him, he will deny us. That's what that means. Here it is. The next one answers that. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If you are in Christ and he denies you, he is denying himself. That is what that is saying. You cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible. We need to go on. Yes, tell me and then we'll go on. All of us here, when we grew up, our moms had those canister sets. One can went inside the other one. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. John chapter 10, he said, you're in me, and I'm in the Father. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. Absolutely. So I'm in that little one inside of Jesus. You're inside. He's inside. He's inside. He is in God the That's Father. 10, about 27 through 30. Absolutely. <laughs> we cannot lose our salvation. So anybody that, that doesn't get that, just take this study, remember the verses, and then go and tell them where they're wrong. And they're going to argue with you anyway, because people love to argue from a position of a lack of knowledge. It happens all the time. <laughs> yes, they really do. Um, okay, so um, I'll read that again. Though the victory is assured, and though the redeemed are already saved once and for all, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and all the other verses we've read, and though we are even now seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, which I just said to you, that is a positional seating, Ephesians 2, 6, we still have this earthly life to get through. That's the bad news, okay? We still have to live out this life. It is one which can which can wear down the hearty, and it is one which can cause us to take our eyes off the Lord. I won't deny that that happens to me almost continuously. I just am always getting misdirected. I've got the Bible running on the, the, uh, the, uh, in the car. I've got it turned up loud enough where it, it's supposed to shock me so I don't get my mind misdirected, and then somebody cuts me off, and I go, and then next thing I know, I'm like, I, five minutes later, I've forgotten everything that was playing, because I've been so possessed by that guy instead of listening to the word. So it happens. It's the way it is. Um, anyway, uh, you're laughing, which means obviously you do the same thing. Okay. No. You never take your eyes off the word. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. Okay, so um, it can wear down the hearty. It is one which can cause us to take our eyes off the Lord. And so Paul now takes the time to admonish the faithful to be strong. His words, be strong in the Lord. The word in Greek is in the present imperative. And so it literally reads, be strengthened in the Lord. Present means it's present tense right now. Imperative means do this thing. Be strengthened in the Lord. It is something... This is one thing, it is not necessary for you to understand the Bible, okay? I tried to tell people this. There are a couple of things that you can do. As a matter of fact, I think it was yesterday's commentary that came out. I gave about 25 yes. um, examples. Was it yesterday? Okay, about 25 examples of the verse we were evaluating, just to make the point in the life application that you can get information by reading different 
versions. You can say, oh, I never thought of that. You got to be careful with that because you don't want to just say, oh, I like that one and I'm going to choose it. That's not the responsible way of doing it. But you can understand the thought. You might not understand what's being said in one version. And you read another and it says the same thing, but it says it in a way that you can now process. So it's good to have different versions and to look at them and to think about why they translated it that way. Some of them are so wrong that it's almost unbelievable. But like I said, if you like that one, then you might gravitate towards it even though it's wrong. So you need to be careful with that. It is not necessary for you to know the Hebrew and the Greek, but it is certainly not harmful. The more that you can learn, and listen, when I started the Genesis sermons, I could read Hebrew and I could speak Hebrew because I took a Hebrew course on my own. I just did it at home and I I could read it. I had no idea what any of it meant. And we are in Deuteronomy now, and I probably know 2% of the Hebrew language or 1%. But I'm developing, I'm learning. And as I, you know, it's funny when I ask Sergio a question now about the text, we will talk about it. And then eventually he says this almost every time that we uh, have a conversation. He says, well, you would know more about that than I would because he does not know the structure. And I know the structure of the Hebrew. I understand how the verbs work and how all of these things fit together. I've learned that through my time doing the five books of Moses. And so I can read that and I'll say, no, Sergio, this means that. So when we get to that part of evaluating the Hebrew, he says, I'm going to defer to you. And that's surprising because I don't speak Hebrew at all. But it's just the same. Here's the same logic. So you understand. When I taught at the Korean church, I had lots of people that were like this, but we'll just give an example of one, Jung-un. Okay. She got married. She's been in the church a couple of times here. Um, while she was my student, she came from from Korea, and she didn't speak any English at all. And yet she knew English way better than any of us here. She knew the structure. She she would say, oh, that's a preposition. Oh, that's a noun. That defines that. She knew all of the structure of the Hebrew. And I could never have done that. I, I did that, what, 25 or 30 years ago in high school? You don't remember that kind of stuff. Who cares? We speak English. We don't need to know. Okay. Yeah, unless you teach it. Right. That's exa- But that's exactly right. So I... Through all of the effort of these sermons, every single week, I've learned how to do those things with the Hebrew. Sergio doesn't because he left school and he speaks Hebrew, and so he doesn't need to know those things. I do because I'm teaching or I'm preaching on these verses. So that's what's going on there. The point I'm making is it is not necessary for you to know Hebrew and Greek. You can get it from the Bible. You may be off in your thinking about a particular verse because the translations are so bad. We'll go through a couple of them this week in this week's sermon where the translation is faulty, and I want to correct that for you. But it is helpful. It can never harm for you to, and Burke is very good about this. He will send all kinds of things out with uh, studies on Greek words and the tense of that word and the this and the that, and it's always very helpful. If you can do that and you can learn I will say this, though. Um, I'll back up a little bit, and I will go so far as to say that when you go to take a course in Hebrew or Greek at at, uh, a university, they've got a saying. You go through your first year of Greek or Hebrew. You've taken the full semester. It's your first year, they will call it. That person now knows just enough to be dangerous. That's right. Okay? you got to be careful because... You you suddenly know something, but you don't know enough, and you're making illogical conclusions, and that happens all 
the time. Isn't that more sophomore team? Sophomore, yes. It's a, somebody that is unwise in their second year. Second year. That's exactly right. So you got to be careful, but it's a good thing to try to learn these things and to improve yourself. It never harms to improve yourself. So that's my play to you now. And the reason why I brought that up is because we're talking about the Greek imperative in the present tense. The present tense means right now. And so if you know enough to go to a concordance, not a concordance, a uh, interlinear study, and it has all of the parsing of the verbs in the Hebrew or the Greek, and you know what that parsing means, you can now develop a thought as to what is being said. Instead of just saying, how did it say it here? Um, uh, it's be strong in the Lord, he says. But the word actually is be strengthened in the Lord. Do it and do it right now. And it is an imperative. You are to do this. It's not just be strong in the Lord. It's be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened. Increase your strength continuously. Don't let it fail. And because it's present tense, that means today, tomorrow, the next day, forever you are to do this. That's what that means, okay? The present tense is wherever you are right now. It's not future where you're to do this tomorrow. It's right now, but whatever your right now is, you're to do that, okay? So would you call this a command? Well, definitely. Even though, yeah, it, well, you can figure it's, a, it's an imperative means do this thing. You are to do this thing. But even if it wasn't an imperative, I would still call it a command because if it just said be strong in the Lord without the imperative, I would still call it because it is prescriptive. Paul's words are prescriptive. And so we are to take that and prescribe it to our lives. But yes, because it's an imperative, we are to do it and we are to do it actively and right now. Okay. Mental block about that. The, um, the, all the Ten Commandments that you're wearing on your back, all but one was uh, restated at another time by Jesus. Yeah. After he rose. Yes. So they not, were. They yes, were, yes, after he rose. After yeah. he rose. They weren't commands. They were. They were what? what it's you, a different word. It's like it's like a less forceful. Well, we're to do it. Um, they are prescriptions. I mean, we're to do those things. Yeah, but like, um, what he's saying is that in the New Testament, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer because this is what the Bible teaches is that the law is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. And what he's saying, and this is a good point to go on before, and we got to get into this first because we've already, we're 40 minutes into the class, but I will get this out of the way and then we'll go on. Okay. Um, he asked about the Ten Commandments. One of them is not repeated in the New Testament, okay, as a command. Okay. So, and I can't think of the word and I will. I can't but anyway, uh, what that means is that people will try to take the Old Testament, the law, and divide it into two halves. What two halves? The Jewish. No. The moral and the civil. They'll say the civil no longer applies, but the moral still applies. Okay? And that they do that because they say, well, we can't say the Ten Commandments don't apply anymore, because if we do that, then we'll be heretic uh, Henry, right? That's, I'm sorry. When it says that the law, it means the law, the law of Moses is annulled, it is obsolete, it is set aside. That is Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9, okay? It's also nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross, therefore the law died. He fulfilled it, it is done, okay? That's uh, Colossians 2.14. What does that mean? The Ten Commandments are no longer valid? Well, yes, but nine of them are restated in the New Testament, okay? We're not to murder, we're to honor our parents. Paul says these things right in the New Testament epistles. Which of the commandments is not required in the New Testament? The Sabbath, okay? Is the Sabbath a part of the Ten Commandments? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Because the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments and we are no longer obligated to observe the Ten Commandments, then that means that the Ten Commandments are obsolete. They are annulled. They are set aside in Christ. What is stated in the New Testament is our directive. There is no such thing as moral law and civil law. It is one law. That's why when James says that if you err in one part of the law, the whole law, you're, you're guilty of the whole law. That's right. It is a codified body. Every single law, statute, judgment, precept, every one of them forms to be the law. Either it's annulled or it's not. If it is not true what I just said, then that means that we should be meeting here Saturday. Friday night at sundown, we should all turn everything off in our house. We're not to light any fires. We're not to do blah, 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 blah. And we are to come here and we're to meet and we're to do all these things. And we might as well add in the feasts of the Lord and we might as well add in having a seat on our garment and we can't, you know, cook a young goat in its mother's milk and all of the other things of the law, they all suddenly become applicable. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. The Sabbath is defined for us in Hebrews 4 verse 3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. We are in our Sabbath rest. Paul discounts the Sabbath several times in Romans 14, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, etc. He says, why are you doing these things? This is not appropriate. Okay, so that's the difference. That's what he asked, but I still can't think of the word, so we're going to have to go on. Okay, so now Paul takes the time to admonish the faithful to be strong in the Lord. It's in the present imperative, be strengthened in the Lord. It is something that we are actively to do, to live out in this life. The way that we are to do this has already been given in Ephesians chapter 3. So, right here. I mean, we're right there. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So, how do we be strengthened in the Lord? Through his spirit. And where do we find his spirit today working, I would say, the most in our lives? Right here. Because if you don't have this and you don't know this, how can you do How can you be strengthened in the Lord if you don't know the word of the Lord? The Holy Spirit is not going to come in while you're sleeping and transfer that information from the book into your head. That's not going to happen. We are responsible to our doctrine, which has been provided. Okay? So, John 6.63, the words that I speak are spirit. Spirit and they are life. That's right. The words that I speak are spirit and they are life. And now those words are where? They're right here. It's not going to come any other way than through hard work, through attentive study, and through praying about the things you don't understand and continuing to attentively study. Okay? It's not going to come any other way. I'm sorry if you believe it, you are wrong. R-O-N-G. It is through his spirit that we can do this. Paul will explain what that means in the verses ahead. However, before getting to those verses, it can be noted that there are things which we must actively do using the tools which the Spirit has already granted to us. If we fail to act, if we fail to act, we will not be strengthened in the Lord. In turn, our walk will be filled with trials and woes, and yet it will be a bed of our own making. This was reflected in the words of Ephesians chapter 4, where he says in verse 430, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you don't do the things that you're supposed to be doing, you are going to grieve 
the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? And what does that mean? Our life will be the one that's out of whack. God's existence does not go out of whack. It is we who will. In the coming words of Paul, he will use this terminology that is reflected in the uniform and armament of a Roman soldier. It is probable, now this is a guess, but it's a pretty good guess. It is probable that he was being guarded because he's in a prison while he's writing this epistle. He was being guarded by a Roman soldier as he wrote, and he looked at him and contemplated a spiritual analogy to his earthly adornment. This is exactly what David does in the Psalms. He says, the Lord is my uh, shield, the shield of my salvation, and he's the this, and he takes all of these implements that he has just laying around him, and he makes spiritual applications out, out of those things. Now, obviously, all scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God, and so God knew that David would do that. He may have prompted him in his mind or his soul to do that, but all scripture is inspired by God. Either he approved of it and said this is going to go in, or he actively influenced it in David's case. I don't know. You know, in some cases, you know that they were actively being influenced. Isaiah writes about things that he had no idea what he was writing about. He just writes them, and sure enough, 15 or 14 or 1,200 years later, whatever, however long before, probably 800 years for Isaiah. Anyway, he wrote these things, and all of a sudden, voila, they're fulfilled in Christ. We know that Isaiah was actively being inspired. As far as David, maybe he wrote a psalm, and the Lord knew that that would be just the perfect thing that would come out of David's heart, and hence he calls David a man after my own heart, because he writes these things, and the Spirit says, I approve of that. I have no idea, you know, I, I, I'm not one that was sitting there analyzing what the Spirit was doing, but we know that it is approved, it is Scripture, and all Scripture is given by God, okay? It is as holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, okay? so. Um, uh, let's see. And, you know, you can take that so far as to say that Luke, how did he write his gospel? What did he do? He walked around and he interviewed people, right? So even his actions had to have been inspired. He had to have gone to this person and Mary probably says, oh, here's the genealogy. Let me give you that. That's from our records, family history or whatever. And he goes over to this guy and this guy says, I saw that. And he says, oh, and go ask John over there. Luke is being led, whether he realized it or not, to write things that were be, would be considered Spirit-inspired. So even his actions had to have been somehow influenced by the Spirit of God. How that works, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to... People write books about this kind of stuff. Uh, as far as the actual process of uh, inspiration, we know that Luke wrote this. There's no doubt. His style of writing is his style of writing. The book of Luke, the book of Acts, we know that he wrote them, okay? When uh, Paul writes an epistle, we can say, well, that's Paul. We just know that. And yet, the Spirit wrote it as well. And so, uh, the good example I use from time to time is that of a uh, person that writes music and a person that plays music. And if you have somebody that wrote a concert and you know that person's concert style, we'll say Mozart, then you can say, well, oh, I've never heard that before, but that's got to be Mozart. And yet, at the same time, you can say, you know, I've never heard that before, but I know that that is the London Sympathy, Sympathy, Symphony, I keep wanting to say Sympathy, poor people in England right now, the uh, London Symphony Orchestra. I know that because I can tell I've listened to them enough. And yet it's one body of work that's coming out. And yet you know that Mozart wrote it, you've never heard it before, and you know that this group of people is playing it, right? If I hear 
Eddie Van Halen play. I don't care who wrote the song. I know it's Eddie Van Halen, right? But if I hear uh, somebody play Eddie Van Halen's music, I can say Eddie Van Halen wrote that even if it's not him playing because I know the style, okay? It's just the way it is. So that is a good way of looking at this. I know that God wrote this. I know his style. I've read the book and Genesis is just like Revelation and everything in the middle. And yet I know that Jeremiah wrote this. I know that the same author is found here in Lamentations. I can tell. So how it works is one of those things that we just need to say, wow, what a wonderful God to be able to do these things so that we have something that we know is reliable, that is consistent, and yet it has the influence of human people so that we can say, oh, I feel bad for Jeremiah during this time, or oh, I'm exulting with Paul in this prison. We can get both of those things at the same time. Good stuff. Okay. Um, uh, yes, he looked at him. He contemplated a spiritual analogy to his earthly adornment. This is similar to what David and others had done in the Old Testament. The guards, being Roman soldiers, would be well-disciplined, meticulously careful with their attire and their weapons, and encouraged in what those things stood for. If you know anybody that was in the military that served faithfully and was a good sergeant or a good officer, you knew that they cared about their uniform. You knew that they cared about their demeanor, how they conducted themselves. You knew that they cared about their people. That You, you could just tell, this is a good officer. This is a crummy officer. This is a good NCO. This guy's been around a long time. You can tell these things. Well, the Roman soldiers, their life was the Roman army. That was their life, just like a good soldier here. We got one that just retired recently. Okay. How long ago did you retire? Six. Six well, that's still pretty recent. I've been out for 25 years or more. So, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, you know, you, you, you just know these things. And so Paul is looking at this guy and he's saying, I'm going to make an example. We'll be at probably uh, next verse. Is that right? Probably. Anyway, uh, the guards being Roman soldiers would be well-disciplined, meticulously cared for. Okay, these implements would be their protection in battle. And it is a battle that soldiers are the most dependent on one another, even as they were brothers by blood. This is seen in the use of the term, my brethren, while finishing his thoughts to the Ephesians. He has told them to be strong in the Lord, but they are also to be strong in the power of his might. That's right. Roman soldiers were individually strong in the empire, but they were also strong as a member of the empire. In other words, an individual soldier may be strong and great in battle. Think of Audie Murphy. He went out into the battle and uh, he blew up tanks by himself. He'd climb up on top of a tank and drop, drop a hand grenade in, blow the people up and go on and do the next one. I mean, if you've, I, I, it's been a long time, but if you ever read Audie Murphy's citation for the Medal of Honor, you will say, that is amazing, right? Sometimes I like to watch the Medal of Honor recipients on YouTube. I haven't done it in a while because I watch most of them and, you know, but now they're getting out of my mind, so I'll probably do it again. But you get the uh, people like, what was his name? Alvin York in the World War One. okay? The guy was incredible. He practically halted the entire German army by himself. This guy that he was a, a hick farmer from Tennessee, right? He was a conscientious objector until the major of his unit talked to him and said, I want you to take the Bible. I want you to go home and consider it while you're on leave. And if you still feel that way when you come back, I will allow you to come out. 
And he was honest, a man of integrity. He checked the word, and the word said, you do have this right and this responsibility to defend your nation. He turned out to be one of the greatest soldiers in all of American history. As a matter of fact, when the president, the sitting president, dies, they have a horse that carries his shoes. The horse is named Sergeant York, okay? They remember his deeds. Um, anyway, so uh, if you know the integrity and the honor of a person that serves in the military faithfully, okay, then you would understand Paul's words that much more. So that's why I'm defining that now. Okay, as an individual soldier, he may be strong like Audie Murphy in battle, but he is not disconnected from the empire he served. Audie Murphy did not win the war. He had people that sent him bullets. He had people that sent him the hand grenades. He had people that made the rifles. There were people at home that cooked the turkeys or whatever that were shipped over to the soldiers. You had other soldiers. You had an uh, officer over him, and you had one over him, and one over him, and you know, in the military, it never ends. I mean, I don't care how high you are. There's still 50 people above you, okay? So uh, there, there is a big unit, and it takes a big unit to win a war. But you have people that serve faithfully and are strong, and then you have the, the, you know, the Roman soldiers. They had all of these different battle positions that they would fight in, and one of them was that the, they had the guys up front with the big, long shields, and I think that's one of them that Paul will talk about. I may be wrong in that. They had different shields, but they had these big, long shields that they would stand behind. And they'd come in as a wall. I mean, literally, they just advance as a wall. And then out would come these long swords. And they would just walk into the people and just skewer them through and just keep on walking, trampling over them. They were well-disciplined. And if somebody died, the guy right behind them would move up, grab that one shield, and they would continue with the wall going forward. So uh, if you ever watch some of these old Roman movies, you know, of the battles, you can get an idea of what it looked like. They were very effective in what they did. And then they had smaller shields for different types of battle. In close, they'd have a sword and, you know, they use this. I think he's going to, I'm going to talk about the different things, so I won't get too far ahead. But um, let's see here. Uh, he's not disconnected from the empire he served. Likewise, he may be strong in the knowledge of the word, a great orator, or an excellent missionary, but apart from the body of Christ as a whole, we are waging a losing battle. It takes support for our missionaries. It takes, you know what, it actually takes people in the U.S., or where, whatever country the missionary comes from to send things to that missionary, money and other supplies so that they can continue on. If people don't support them, then they're lost, okay? They need to have a support base. And probably the most important support base for all, yes, is prayer. I mean, these people are wholly dependent on what's going on around them. And if people aren't praying for the Lord to protect them, they are going to be consumed. They're going to be swallowed up. So, and that was from a, a person that's been a missionary for 20-some years. That was a long time of her life. Okay, 11 years faithfully overseas. Like and Yeah, it seemed like 20 years. Without you here, oh, we all grew old very quickly. Okay, so um, anyway, um, uh, you know, I, I'll say that later. Okay, um, okay, yes, we're waging a losing battle if we are not a part of the whole. We are to be strong in his power as well as strong in our individual stations within his body. The two combined together are what make it possible for us to endure the trials that are sure to come in this life. They're absolutely going to come. Okay, life application. The Lord has given us his word by which we can be strong in the Lord. But we also must apply that word to our lives. Knowledge without application 
is wasted knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world, and if you don't apply it to your life, you are wasting that knowledge, okay? You think of people that are professors at seminary, and they have all the head knowledge in the world, but are they actually living out that knowledge? You've got pastors that are trained in theology, systematic theology. They know all of the ins and outs of whatever system they believe in, whether it's Calvinism or dispensationalism or covenantalism or whatever. They know the the nuts and bolts, and yet they don't live it out. It really is valueless in their lives. They may be building somebody else up in the process, but in their life, it's just wasted time, wasted effort. Let us trust in the power of the Lord to direct us in all ways. Okay, you know, I, I always feel convicted when I read things like this. I type this. These are my words, and I'm giving you a life application and a way of improving yourself, okay? It makes it sound like Charlie must be a really great guy because he wrote these things and he's exhorting us. I need these words as much as you do. That's why I type these every morning. Those life life applications are usually geared to me. I'm saying I need this today and this is how I'm going to stimulate my actions is because I'm completely fallible. I'm completely, like, you know, I'm the most irascible person I know on the face of the planet. Mom is agreeing over there right now. Okay. So the fact is that when I write these things, it's not because I'm better than you and I'm telling you what to do. I'm telling Charlie Garrett what to do. And I'm hoping that other people will feel the same and improve themselves in that manner as well. Yes. You said the word. What? Exhortation. Exhortation. There you go. Thank you. That's, that's the word. Instead of a commandment, it is an exhortation. That's right. Okay. Thanks for doing it. Um, yes, absolutely. It came out without me even realizing it. Okay, I'll read that again. Let us trust in the power of the Lord to direct us in all ways, but let us also not be deficient in growing in our knowledge of him as well. That is, and that's why we're in Bible study right now. Um, it's kind of heartbreaking to see the numbers on, say, a prophet, which I haven't looked at the numbers in years, so I don't care, but I used to. And, you know, we'd have all these high numbers on a prophecy update, and we'd have like three people watching a Bible study. And it just breaks my, I have no idea. You know, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, and, you know, afterward, more people will tune in, I know. But it, it, it's always people want sensation. They want an easy sermon that's going to say something, and, or they want something that's sensational, like the Nephilim are flying around the, the uh, planet today or something. And you'll get 10 billion views on a sermon with that kind of junk. If people really want to improve themselves, the numbers are usually low because people don't really want to improve themselves. So for those that do, it's always a very welcome thing to get an email and to say, I've been following your your Corinthians Bible study and I'm so built up in the Lord and I just thank you for that. Okay, uh, 6.11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay, this is a little different. And yes, we are getting into the armor of God today. I told Bert that we'd probably be done with verse 24 and be done with Ephesians today, but that probably won't happen. But we're going to start the armor of God. This one says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, that wily guy, the wiles of the devil. And when I think of that, I think of wily coyote, you know, the wiles. Okay. Um, okay, 611. Here we go. Comments. In order to explain the words of the previous verse, Paul now introduces the thought of protective armament, both for offensive and defensive uses. His words were that we are to be, here they are, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In order to do that, we are now told to put on the whole armor 
of God. What that means is he's going to give us armor. I'm going to, before we read this, I'm going to give you, and maybe I'm going to repeat this. I'm sorry if I do, but you'll get to hear it twice. Um, he, I'm going to take you down here, and it says, um, uh, spiritual, take up the whole armor of God. He says it again in verse 13, and then he says, girded your waist with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts, the wicked one, okay, taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's right. Okay. So he just gave you those things. Excuse me. He gave you those things. And what did he just say in this verse? Put on one of these implements as you go out in the morning. He said, put on all the whole armor of God. If you're not doing all of these things, you're ineffective because you might have the gospel of peace with you. But if you don't have the, um, the uh, shield of faith, the devil's going to eat you up. He's going to eat you alive. And if you got the shield of faith and you're not telling people about the gospel, then what good is it? Right? You got to put on the whole armor of God. Okay? To Greek, the Greek word for whole armor is panoplia. Anybody heard that word before? A panoply. Okay? Panoplia. It equates directly to our modern word. Here it is. Panoply. It is only used twice in this chapter and once in Luke 11, verse 22. It signifies a complete set of defensive and offensive armor, meaning weapons. For example, everything needed to wage successful warfare. Figuratively, the full resources the Lord gives to the believer so that they can successfully wage spiritual warfare. In this way, they do not fight for victory, but from his victory. That's helps word studies. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from his victory. We have won the battle. We are in Christ. Therefore, we can take up the armor of God and we can continue in that battle fighting from his victory. Okay, that's an important point. Now, once again, let's go back to Audie Murphy. If he walked out onto the battlefield in the morning and he didn't have on his shoes, he would not have been a very effective soldier when it was the middle of winter time. He would have gotten frostbite and he would have been admitted to the hospital almost immediately. If he went out without his, his rifle, he probably would not have lasted two seconds because people are shooting and you shoot and you take them out and then you move on. Okay, if he didn't have on his helmet, you know, helmets were not really effective. And I don't know how much they are now with Kevlar because I've never wore one. But I can tell you that you look at some of the, uh, you know, they've got these uh, World War II helmets on display and they've got bullets that passed right through them. Okay, but it would at times deflect a bullet. It would hit at just the right thing and the guy would survive. Otherwise, it would have hit his skull and gone straight through. Okay, um, I heard a story one time that a guy was hit with a bullet, and the bullet went all the way around his head and exited out the front again. And he had all the way around his head, a, this was World War II, he had all the way around his head a, uh, yeah, so you never know what crazy things are going to happen in battle. I've heard of people having all kinds of weird things happen with their helmet, okay? Um, the stories go on and on. How many of them are actually stories and truth? I don't know. But I've got a soldier over here that shook his head when I said that about the bullet, so he must not believe it. Uh, but there, there, is a reason for, there is a reason for bullets. Listen, I'm just relaying what I heard. I Listen, I know somebody. 
I know somebody personally that was shot with an AK-47 right here. And he survived. He's sitting in this room right now. He had his clip, is it called, or a magazine? What's it called? Magazine. He had his magazine right here. It completely knocked him out. And this is when that guy carried you? No. No. Okay. I was going to make a, a, a point about racism, but I won't do that today. Yeah. Um, no. He, uh, this guy grew up and he never knew any black people. And when he got to uh, 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 basic training, you know, all the people are talking good or bad about blacks, you know. He'd never even really seen one. And he said uh, something happened. He, he damaged several times in battle. One of the times he was damaged, a guy that he didn't know picked him up and carried him a mile two, or three miles, something like that. It was a long way. He was a black guy. And he said, any thought of racism that could have been trained into me was gone that day. Okay. So that was just a little life application for you. But I know somebody that was actually hit with an AK-47, which should have destroyed everything from the front all the way back, should have destroyed him. And yet he survived. So you wear your helmet or you might not make it back, etc. The whole armor of God is the point. Okay. So, um, we are to, I just read you helps word studies. We are going from his victory, not for victory. We are to determine what the armor of God is and then to adorn ourselves with it. Paul would detail and explain each implement which comprises this armor. From that, we are to pay heed to his words, applying these concepts to our spiritual lives. This armor of God, Paul's words, corresponds to what he spoke of in the book of Romans. It was in Romans chapter 13, and he says there, Romans 11, 12, and 13, he says in verse 12, uh, let's see here, I'll start in 11, and do this, knowing that, that the time is now high, it, I better read that again, and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Well, he's going to define what that is, okay? The armor of light is the armor of God. It is contrasted to that which belongs to the devil and which belongs to darkness. In explanation of the armor of light, Paul continues on in Romans 13 with the words from Romans 13 verse 14. Uh, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Okay, we've got the armor of light. We're not to follow the ways of the devil, the ways of this earth, the ways of the flesh, etc. Everything which Christ embodies and displays is what we are to pursue. His humanity was sinless and perfect. We are to pursue this. His deity is absolute holiness. We are to strive to likewise be holy. We are told to pursue Christ by adorning ourselves in his light and adorning ourselves in what his human divine nature signify. Paul's instructions in this are his words, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It's a lot of words to evaluate. I wish I'd broken it down a little more, but okay. The Greek word for wiles is methodea. Anybody? kind of hear a word there, his methods. It is only found here in Ephesians 4.14, which speak of the deceitful plotting of those opposed to the truth of the gospel. It indicates, this is what methodia means, a predictable preset method 
used in organized evil doing, meaning well-crafted well -crafted trickery. Once again, that helps word studies. They're very good about helping with word studies. Okay, so I can recommend them. But um, having said that, I had a point indicates a predictable preset method used in organized evil. Okay, I don't remember what my point was. Okay, it went right out of my head. Um, so, oh, I know what it was, is that if you know the etymology of words in English, it will help you understand why you say things in English. And a lot of the technical terms that we use in the English language, terms used in medicine, terms used in especially philosophy, and in the ways of gearing your life, they come from the Greek, okay? And you'll see that if you look at the Greek words and you think about it, you will often say, I know how that fits into this word here, okay? If you want a lot of the common use words in our language, you would go to the Latin, okay? If you want some of the uh, maybe mechanical words or medical words in the English language, you would go to German, okay? Because it's a basic language. It's very similar to what we have here. You've got these different root languages that lead into English. And if you can remember those things, when you get to uh, reading something that's in German or that's in Greek, you might not know what it's actually saying, but you can get an idea of what is being said. Okay, so it's uh, interesting. I love following the languages. That's another thing that I will follow on YouTube if I have five minutes and a language video comes up. I'll usually click on that instead of something stupid like, you know, uh, how many crashes today in the U.S. or something. You know, people have their dash cams and they love to make videos about that. And you can watch all the crashes for the past week. You're wasting your time. It is fun to watch, though, I got to admit. But anyway, um, has a great parallel to what we are seeing in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 4 continues on with the words, uh, with these words. We're going to go to Ephesians 4, verse 15. It says, um, uh, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Okay? We are to put on the whole armor of God so that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So he's tying together what he said in chapter 4 now with what he's saying here in chapter 6. Okay? What is implied, oh, I'm sorry, um, yes, we grow up all things who is ahead. We cannot do this unless we are properly dressed in the armor of God in order to stand against the wiles of the devil. What is implied in this verse is that those who do not put on the whole armor of God will not be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Instead, they will remain, as was noted in the previous verse from Ephesians, Ephesians 4.14, which is a great, great verse to think of people. Just think of people in, in um, uh, churches. I'm talking about pastors and teachers that are just, they're all over the place. Why? Right here, 14. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You go online and you read commentaries that people give on the Bible or about Bible archaeology or whatever and you get sucked up into it because these people are cunning, they are crafty, and they are tricky. And if you don't know the word or if you don't know what they're talking about, you just say, oh, I didn't know that. Next thing you know, it becomes a part of your theology or a part of your doctrine. So uh, it's best to not believe anything until you have checked it out for yourself. I've done that in the past where I've used a commentary, and I didn't have time, say, to go back and check the Hebrew myself, and then come to find out it's wrong. Okay, and I, I, when that happens, 
I said this to somebody this week. It can be a really small error, but I will spend the next 20 minutes apologizing to the Lord when I find out. I'm so sorry. I would not have done that if I had known. You can't do everything in life. There's a point where you have to say this is a competent uh, analysis and I'm going to go with it. And then you find out it's not you used it and went on with it. Yeah, it just destroys me. I, it just it does. Okay, life application. In order to mature in Christ and in order to defend against what the attacks of the devil mean, we need to properly prepare ourselves. Paul will explain what the whole armor of God is in the coming verses. Let us pay heed to these words and then apply them to our lives soberly, considering that the devil is there and he is ready to attack us at our weakest points and in our weakest moments. No doubt about it, 100% and for sure, that is the case. So, 612. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. I hope we have time to do all this. Let's see here. Hang on a sec. Yeah, it's only a page, two pages. Okay, we'll get it. Um, let's see here. Uh, uh, which is way too short. This should have been like a, a book written on this verse right here. Okay. Um, it's disappointed. Yeah, disappointed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking that just a day ago. I was thinking, I want, after I do the epistles and I get done with the Gospels, because I'm not going to go start writing a commentary in the Old Testament. If I'm still alive, I'm going to redo all the epistles again, because they're way too short. They're way too brief. And, and I just skipped over, especially with Romans, because that was the first one way too much information. I was reading a Romans commentary I did a day ago, and I was going, oh. uh, okay, but you, you know, you just, it's like with the Genesis sermons. I said to somebody, I wish I had just been able to go back and do the first half of Genesis again. You learn as you go, you do what you can, and you go on. So, okay, 612, the Greek word for wrestle is found only here in the Bible. It indicates a fight, a struggle, or a conflict, but it is a noun. It is not a verb. Therefore, it more accurately reads, for our wrestling is not against, rather than our wrestle. We are, our, I'm sorry, yes, for our wrestling. We're not in this wrestling. It is a wrestle, is what the word means. It is a match we are engaged in. It is active and ongoing, but it is not against, Paul's words, flesh and blood. Actually, in the Greek, the order is reversed. It says blood and flesh. The life is in the blood, and thus without the blood, there would be no movement of the flesh. Regardless of this, we are in a wrestling match, but it is not one which is of the body against other physical bodies. In other words, even if the world is filled with people who stand against Christ and the gospel, which we know is true, that is not the source of the battle, and we are not actually in a war against them. Rather, the fight is against, and he's going to lift five or six things that we're going to have to go through. Okay, so when you think of the people that are in the government right now, you know, we got, we call them the squad, for example, or actually we could just say the Democrats, that all of them are doing the, the work of the devil, all of them, and a lot of Republicans too. I, I don't want to get too political here, but we look at the people that are actively fighting against the Lord, and we know that they are filled with the devil. Okay, we're not fighting against them personally. We're fighting against the ideology that has infected them, which is of the world, and it is of 
the devil. There's no doubt about it. It is 100% true. That is why they don't want to hear people pray to Jesus when they open the Congress anymore. It's because that has power. Okay? So the first is principalities. The Greek is arche. It is a word which indicates rule, such as in a kingly or a magisterial sense. It is properly, now this is helps word studies, and I know it gets a little hard to understand, but I'll try to make it understandable. It is properly, from the beginning, a temporal sense. Temporal means time. For example, the initial or the starting point. Figuratively, what comes first and therefore is chief, meaning foremost. That is arche. For example, it has the priority because it is the head of the rest. Okay, that's the principalities. All right, in other words, there is a hierarchy of wickedness, and these would be the first or starting point of that system of wickedness. We know that it is the devil and his demons. Okay, that's the starting point of all of this wickedness. Okay, in the human being, it's probably we could just assign it to the heart and be done with it. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, the next is powers. The Greek is exu. Exousia, excuse me, exousia. It indicates authority from confirmed power or that which is delegated. The word ek means out of, so you kind of get a sense of that. It, from conferred power or that which is delegated. These would be under the principalities. You've got the principalities, you've got the powers, and so would be granted power to carry out their designated schemes. Both of the terms so far meaning principalities and powers have already been seen in Ephesians 1 verse 21. They are being repeated here, but they are in subjection to Christ as was noted in that verse. Okay, let me take you there really quickly. Ephesians 1 21, just so you can get the context of what we're talking about. It says there, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all, here it is, verse 21, principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. That's why the analysis of the previous verse says from victory. We're not fighting for victory. Christ has already won. What we're doing is we are doing our job in this world from a position of Christ's victory, if we are willing to use the tools available to us. Okay, the next one here is uh, the rulers of the darkness of this age. The Greek for rulers is found only here in the Bible. It is kosmokrator. It refers to Satan and demons who influence worldly people's lives. The phrase is more correctly rendered, the world rulers of this darkness. This word shows the limits of these beings. In the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the Pantocrator. It's translated in the Bible as Almighty. Panto means all, right? Pan, everything, and then Krator, the leader or the, the authority, okay? As I said, it's translated as Almighty or ruler of all, Pantocrator. And so, Cosmocrator defines a limited being and thus limited powers. However, it is a ruling ability which does span the entire world. There is no part of it which is not susceptible to their powers of darkness. And this darkness is set in contrast to Christ's light. Ephesians 2 verse 2 shows that this power extended over the Ephesians and thus anyone else before coming to Christ. But 
when the gospel was heard, they became obedient to it and moved from the darkness of the world to the light of Christ. Okay? As I said earlier, all these people that are in the governments and that are out there in Google and all of these places that are scheming their little schemes are infected with the devil. That's all there is to it. They are led by the devil. He is their leader. He is their master. What they need to do is come to Christ. And if they don't, they will continue to be exercising the power of the devil in this world for its ultimate demise. Okay? As can be seen, this battle is spiritual in nature. This is confirmed in the next category. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's a lot of verses to evaluate, and I don't have a lot of words, so I'm sorry you're not getting a really full evaluation. Like I said, this could be a book on this. According to Vincent's word studies, this phrase is collective of the evil powers viewed as a body. Spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wickedness is active evil. It is mischief. The term heavenly places or heavenlies refers to the spiritual nature of the battle. Rather than being a fixed location, the battle is being waged as if in the air above, denoting all places at any given time. This is what's going on in the world around us. It's what's happening in the hearts of people all over the world. Minds are being infected. Schools are teaching wickedness. All of that comes from this spiritual warfare. All of it. Every single bad thing that is going on in this world that is increasing in wickedness is because they are gaining the upper hand in the world because Christians are not upholding their responsibility. They're not working to do their job and they are being ineffective in their, their witness. They're being ineffective in their theology. Churches are filled with all kinds of things they should not be filled with. Instead of preaching the word of God, they're doing other things, okay? Um, I was sent a uh, page from a book that was written in uh, a long time ago, but it was writing about a person that started. He was a communist that got into the Methodist church in, I think it was 1919, okay? He was in there for 38 years doing his wickedness. And you wonder why the Methodist church and all of these churches have fallen away? It's because this has been a planned agenda all along. As Tokamato or De Tocqueville, not Tokamata, uh, De Tocqueville said, you know, the guy that was the French guy that came over here and he talked about the greatness of the American experiment back, you know, in the early, late 1700s, early 1800s, somewhere around there. And he said that the, the stabilizing, the foundation of this nation is their Christian faith. It is, if you attack that, you will gain the victory in this battle. It's basically his words. That's a paraphrase, and it's not what he said, but that's, you get the intent. Is that that is the establishment and the foundation. And so what have they been doing for the past 200 years? They've been whittling away at the churches. Take out the churches, take the people, the faith out of the people, take the people out of the churches, and the next thing you have is a nation that has no focus at all, okay? They force things on their, their military now that are perverse. It's just, and this is a military that just 20 or 30 years ago, they issued Bibles to people if they wanted them, okay? You don't see this anymore. You're not even allowed to talk about Jesus anymore without possibility being reprimanded, okay? So, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the uh, mischief and the wickedness. I said the forces have powers, but they are limited in nature. Further, they can be and are being used against Christians. In some cases, they are used to diminish their effectiveness. In others, their powers are used as a form of punishment for falling away. Two good examples of the letter are where Paul hands someone over to Satan for disobedience. 
These are found in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, the sexually immoral person, and 1 Timothy 1.20, where two guys, I think it's Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've fallen away, and he says, I've handed them over to Satan. They're not unsaved, but they're going to suffer the fate that the devil will have with them in this world, and they'll get no rewards when they face the Lord. This is a real battle. This isn't just some fake thing that's going, all you have to do is look out the door. I mean, just open your door and open it up. You can see this is a real battle that's going on in America. It's going on in the whole world. It's been going on since the very beginning of man's time on earth. Only through Christ can these powers be defeated. Paul will explain what the implements of this battle are for us, how to use them in the verses ahead. If we fail to pay heed to his words, we will find ourselves ineffective in the war which is being waged. We'll just be lumped along with all of the other people in this, this sad experiment called the, the church, okay, because we have let it fall. It's not a sad experiment from Christ's perspective. He established it. It is his body. It's the people that I'm talking about, the sad experiment in each one of our lives, if we are willing to follow that path. The church itself is Christ's church, and he will make wonderful things out of it, even through our disobedience. But each one of us individually in this church, we're the experiment. And if we're going to squander it away, what a sad, sad, you know, commentary on our lives. Okay. Um, life application. Anyone who doesn't believe we are in a spiritual battle is not paying attention. If they are a believer in Christ, they are being duped by the very powers which Paul is describing. They may be saved but they are doing more to help the enemy than to ensure that he is defeated. What a sad state for those who will someday stand before the Lord and have to face his judgment, having done nothing to further his kingdom. Yes. Rick Peretti, This Present Darkness, it's the book he wrote. Okay. It describes all of this. Frank Beretti. Peretti. Peretti. Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness. Present darkness. Okay. Yeah, it talks about all the what's going on in heavenly. Okay, Burke recommends that book. If he does, then I'll give it a 10% recommendation. I'm kidding. You said Russell was the only place that was here. How about when uh, Jacob wrestled with the angel? Greek word, that's Hebrew. Yeah. Okay, we got, we got to pray. We're right at the end of the class. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to just share in your word and give us the ability to pay attention in the days ahead when we go through these uh, verses about the armament and to apply them to our lives. Help us to be effective because we've only got a short time in this life. Even if you were to come tomorrow, our lives uh, are short enough as they are. And if we, you don't come for another hundred years, we've only got a very short time to live out these lives. So help us to live them to your glory and in defense of your gospel. Help us not to be ineffective, but to be effective soldiers in the battle against these wicked, wicked spiritual beings and realms that are around us. Lord, we pray this that you'll be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we are you, just almost at the end of the uh, the thing, and then you bring up wrestling, but it was referring to the Greek word, only that Greek word. Okay, so let me go to the break, and we'll say goodbye. I hope. Yeah, are we still?